0: This
1: podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Hi, everybody. My name is Catherine Stestig, and I'm the Assistant Director of Undergraduate Research in the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships. Welcome to our first ever Responsible Conduct of Research workshop with more
2: undergraduates this is something new that we are doing this year. for being our guinea pigs, our test audience, um, and for your patients, in registering for the CITI course and for appearing today. Um, so first, I would like to introduce Dr. Ken Wieter, who is the Assistant Vice President for Research and Strategic Initiatives, He will
3: give us a few words on the importance of RCR, which stands for the responsible market of research, um, and why it's so important here at Philadelphia, and Good morning. Good morning. morning. First of all, welcome to all of you and congratulations that you have been chosen to participate in undergraduate research this summer. Let me ask you a couple questions. How many of you are in the sciences? Uh, Social science. Engineering, <laughs> arts and humanities, <laughs> nursing, Brilliant. other. So let me ask you another question. How many of you think that research is going to be your final career in life? <laughs> How many do you think maybe? How many of you think? I don't know, I had this summer this summer and I got paid and I get fed so I get to places to sleep. <laughs> 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 it doesn't matter because at this stage of your life, life, you know, probably don't know what life you had in 30 years uh, 10 or 15 years from now. So I will tell you this is my 31st year at Villadon University. Which means you weren't individually good in your parents' eye when I first came to Village, <laughs> your parents might not even know their it. So anyhow, you're do undergraduate research this summer under the mentorship of the faculty To share a couple of thoughts about research. To me, to become a researcher, it doesn't matter if it's arts or humanities or social sciences or engineering or whatever, it takes three things. It takes skill, it takes talent, and it takes passion. At this point in your life, you may not know which of those things you have. Skill is something you have to learn. Something that your, your faculty member or advisor will help you develop skills over the summer, appropriate to whatever area of research you're going to do. And the development of skills is a lifelong thing in research. You keep developing new skills as you go along. Talent is another thing. Talent is something that you either have or you don't. It's an innate thing. And at this point in your life, you don't know what you have because you're just getting started. At some point, if you're going to be a researcher for life, The light bulb is going to go off and say, I can do this, I have an ability to do this, this is what I'm going to do. So that might not be some, but don't worry about it. Uh, And the last thing is passion. Again, this is something that probably develops over time, but the the unpassionate researcher is not going to be a very good research. You have to love American. If you're studying the native behavior of ants, you love it. The person next to you goes, It doesn't matter. It's your thing and your passion. So I'll just opening comments about research. Why we're here today is to have a formal session on responsible conduct the conduct of research. And I will say that the credibility of research, whether it's your research or my research or whether it's research or graduate student research in your laboratory, depends on that research having been done with 100% integrity and 100% responsibility. And at this point, you may not know exactly what that means, and that's the subject of today's research. But especially in a school like Dolan that values truth, values honesty, values integrity, is infused throughout your undergraduate curriculum. It's especially critical to us that our undergraduate students, our graduate students, our postdocs, and our faculty all understand what responsible conduct research public research means in the 21st century. and So that's why we're here today is to have this formal training. I'm absolutely delighted to see so many of you here. When I first came to Pullen this room, I kept five people. I was 31 years ago. So The University's investment in undergraduate research has grown dramatically. I thank you all for being here. Uh, I wish you all the best this summer. And- At this point, let me turn it over to the other people who are running the program. Thank you all of you. Thank you, Dr. Peter. Um,
2: It's my pleasure to introduce Alice Leffy from Environmental Health and Safety, who will be giving you a 101 on environmental health and safety. Thank you.
4: You may wonder how environmental health and safety, what does that have to do with the responsible conduct of research? Um, in order to conduct responsible research, you need to be safe. You as people need to be safe. And we need to protect climate. And so this environmental health and safety is fundamental to conducting um, good research. This is going to be really, really quick, really quick review of issues. How many of you are um, living in on-campus housing? And how many of you are Villanova students in the regular school year? Okay, great. So at Villanova, our policy, and I'm not going to read all this because you all can read, but our policy is basically we want you to be safe when you're here, safe when you're not here, and we want to protect the environment. So we want everyone to go home at the end of every day in the same condition that they came in, which is uninjured in any way. So, a couple of things. <coughs> is, the most important thing is, what do you do when there's an emergency? And you might think, oh, there's not going to be any... Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. Now, I'm going to see if This is kind of an eye chart. The important thing for you to realize is look for the name of the building where you are housed both during the day to do your research and if you're on campus where you're housed when you're not doing your, when you're you're relaxing. If there were to be a fire, an emergency evacuation of any kind, there are evacuation locations and that's where emergency responders will go to look for you. Um, That's where the Radnor Fire Department will go to look for you. And it's important for you to be there. The idea is we don't want um, emergency first responders to have to go into a building to look for you because you went over to the other side of the building because you wanted to get coffee while you were out um, and they were all looking for you in this evacuation location. So take a moment to look for your evacuation um, location again during the day and after when uh, you're your residence. If you don't get it, um, I've given your, uh, I have a handout for your tax. So you can go to that and get that. But, um, so if the fire alarm goes off, please pay attention to it. Please don't ignore it. Um, it goes off for a reason. You know, we do fire drills during the summer, so um, you may be in a building that has um, a fire alarm it goes off. The other thing I would ask is when you evacuate, don't all cluster around the door, um, which is what everybody tends to do because they want to get right back in because they're so anxious to get back to their research. But, um, if it were a true emergency, when everyone clusters around the door, the first responders can't get in. So the idea is you need to be, these evacuation locations are about 100 yards away from the building entrances, and that's why. So please pay attention to that. Okay, chemicals, I saw a lot of you are engineers, a lot of you are scientists, and you, you may work with chemicals, the things that you traditionally think of as chemicals. Even for those of you who are in social sciences or humanities of some kind, you work with chemicals because OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, defines chemicals very, very broadly. So when you use a copier, you're working with a chemical because the toner is a chemical. If you are cleaning in the kitchenette, I know everybody likes it. If you're cleaning up in the kitchenette, the product that you're using is identified as a chemical Ocean. So this information applies to everyone, not just engineering and science. This topic is called hazard communication. You may have heard of something called right to know, which is basically, this is your right to know about the chemicals that you're using. You need to be able to find chemical information if you need it, which includes a safety warning, protective equipment, and first aid. So that's the whole point of this topic. This is a topic required by law um, for all employees. Once you're getting paid as part of your research, you are considered an employee for the summer. Okay, this, there's three groups that have responsibility for this, chemical manufacturers, Villanova as the employer, but you have, you have responsibility as well. We're gonna go through what your responsibility. And these responsibilities are spelled out in the law. So it's not just me saying, hey, you have to do this, and, um, this is the law. So what are Villanova's responsibilities? That's why we're here. We have to have a written hazard communication program, and we do, and it's on our um, Environmental Health and Safety website, and your mentor will a link to that. Um, we have to inform you about the regulation and the existence of our program is what I'm doing right now. We have to have a chemical inventory. And we have an inventory, an online chemical inventory of all the chemicals in Will Whether whether it's you know. sulfuric so acid or Windex, we have them all in an online inventory. All chemicals have to be labeled and we buy them from the manufacturer label, that's part of the manufacturer's responsibility to label their chemicals. And we have to make safety data sheets available Safety data sheet, we'll talk about that a little more in a minute, but basically that has all of the chemical information on it. We have an online um, database of over 300,000 safety data sheets that's available on our website, but if you can't get to that for some reason, the easiest thing to do is Google the name of the chemical with safety data sheet, and it's the first thing that comes up. And we have some training, so we're doing that today. So here are responsibilities. You need to understand the hazards of what you do. And not just for chemicals. Um, One of the things that you're learning as researchers is to pay attention to detail and pay attention to your surroundings and and, and that sort of thing. That's part of your responsibility to protect yourself. But it's specifically called out for this regulation. You need to be able to read and recognize and understand the labels on the chemicals and the safety data sheets understand how labels are used, and follow safe procedures when you're working with chemicals. So many of you, if you're working in a laboratory, you may have seen little tables outside the laboratory where you keep your food so that you're not eating or drinking in the laboratory. That's part of the safe use of chemicals. You shouldn't be eating and drinking in the same place where you're using chemicals because you don't want to ingest those chemicals. This is called a Globally Harmonized System, GHS label. Every label on every chemical around the world has the same six elements on it. They don't all look the same, but you can go anywhere and find these elements. The name, which in this case is sulfuric acid. The pictograms, those are the two um, red diamonds and I'll talk a little bit more about pictograms in a moment. The signal word, danger. um, Hazard statements, which are basically warnings to you when you're using this chemical and precautionary statements, which are um, very simple first aid, and then the name of the manufacturer. Those six pieces of information should be on every chemical label, and it's a a, a relatively new regulation. It's been um, implemented over time, so you may still see some chemicals without this kind of labeling, but anything that we purchase at this point will have this sort of labeling on it. Safety data sheets, I'm not gonna go through all these. They're huge. Some of them are 20 pages long, so they call it a sheet, but it's a 20-page sheet because it has all these sections in it. You may only care about the firefighting or what to do when you spill it or how to safely store it, but all this information is available to you on a safety data sheet. This is an example of um, a product that you may have in your home. If you don't have it, I'm guessing your parents somebody in your family has it because WD-40 fixes everything but in the eyes of OSHA it's a chemical and so the point is things that you may not think of as chemicals, OSHA uses that word so very broadly. I want to talk a little bit about personal protective equipment, which is basically what are you wearing if you're in a laboratory? So, for those of you who aren't in engineering or science, you may not care about this, but uh, I'll be brief. In general, close to shoes, long pants, and a lab coat or apron when working with an So, those are the basics. I know it's hot, I know it's summer, I love flip flops too. But um, in a laboratory, Flip-flops and shorts are not appropriate attire. And your mentors, those of you working in the laboratory, have been given this information as well. So if you want, bring a pair of sweatpants, bring a pair of, you know, whatever, long pants to have in the laboratory and keep a pair of sneakers in the lab if you want or whatever. But please, please do not wear um, shorts or open to shoes in the laboratory. Um, You want to protect your eyes when you're working with chemicals. So we have two, you know, we have safety <coughs> glasses that have side shields. So if you have glasses, like I have regular glasses that are plastic, and you say that will protect my eyes? No, they have to have the side shields so they have to be safety glasses. Um, that will protect your eyes not only from splashes but also from particulates. Um, if you're working with a powder chemical and you pour and you get that little puff, safety glasses will protect your eyes from that. Or goggles, if, there's, if it's um, more of a mist or a vapor type. So either way, you should be wearing safety glasses. Um, and I'm just going to take a side note here. You all are undergraduates. And someday, um, I know you all aspire to have a job where, you know, maybe a high paying job in a, an industrial environment or a manufacturing environment or that kind of thing. This is a minimum expectation in, in the work world. You go into a, 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 a laboratory setting, the minimum expectation is that you wear safety glasses, and that you can wear a popular laboratory attire. So it's good to start practicing now. Um, gloves. Um, no glove is good for all hazards. So a glove that you would use, say, to um, cut, if you're going to use a sharp instrument, there's a glove called a cut glove, and it's, um, it's used a lot in like, a dining setting, but also if you're using a scalpel or something like that. A cut glove is a mesh glove that will protect your hand from sharks. Um, which is different than, say, a glove that you protect your hands from chemicals. Gloves have a finite lifespan, so when they start looking you know, old and maddy, they're old and and they're not doing their job, so you need to dispose of them and get a new pair. Um, so every time you put on your gloves, check them. Make sure there's no tears or holes or anything like that, because if there are, the gloves aren't doing their job just to protect your hands. Those are not good gloves. And then as you take your gloves off, please wash your hands. It's good hygiene. If there was a pin hole that you didn't notice and you got a chemical on your hand and then you pick up an apple and eat it, probably not what you want to be doing. So just general good practice wash your hands. Um, so, summary. PPE, which is personal protective equipment. You use it when, other, when hazards in the area can't be controlled by any other means. It's specific to the area. So if you're using chemicals, you need gloves that are specific to those chemicals. It should be in good condition and stored in a way that will protect it. So don't just store your safety plastic all over the place because it a fact that i not doing their job for you when like you wear them. And your faculty mentors will ensure that your PPE is available and that So the last thing I want to talk about is if you do get hurt, please let someone know. Tell your faculty member if you get hurt. No matter how small you think it is, there's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is if you get hurt, um, Villanova has insurance that will pay for your medical treatment. So you, know, you don't want to call home and say I need a couple hundred dollars because. I if you want to call them and ask for a couple hundred dollars, don't ask for a number, right? Um, besides, i will scare of parents. But uh, it's important to report them and the other thing about reporting injuries is we in Environmental Health UK, we look at the whole scope of injuries and look trends, So when we see a certain community happening over and over again, or even just two or three times, we start to look at that, that process that procedure that area whatever the case may be so we can prevent somebody else from getting up to- <coughs> So it's really important so let your faculty member knows just a little bit on the environmental if you're going to generate any waste and this is particularly in a laboratory type setting make sure you know how to get rid of it um pouring chemicals down the drain is not done and uh, so proper waste handling is really We have to comply with all these federal, state, and local environmental regulations, which the the normal uh, occupants of your laboratory um, know what to do. And finally, we're trying to support sustainability, so recycling and energy conservation. and And so, please try and support them. to what your research is. We're not gonna touch on that. But please go back to your faculty mentor and ask um, so that you can be safe in everything you Questions? Okay, have a very safe and enjoyable summer
5: and welcome back to your class. I have an obvious question. So anybody who has a situation, of the first amendment to dial nine one one. Is that the proper
4: response? No. No. Yeah. Please call 4444, um, that would be our on-campus emergency response, and um, if, not, if, if a call to 911 would be necessary, that 444 goes to public safety and they will call um, an outside response. So that's a good question. 444?
3: Yeah, 4 fours, fours. Fours, yeah. Yes. Um, So, do you think know, that these hazardous waste assets, that you can write down what chemicals, and they get collected in the spring and in the fall. That's right. But in the summertime, when most of the waste is developed and no one come to get it and don't know how to get rid of it. We always have this problem with older children as well, for Okay, <laughs> So, what's um, <laughs> the part right? This is part This is part and, Um, I'm gonna, uh, my suggestion would be to, um,
4: that Other questions? Okay, great. Very good. Thank you.
2: researcher um, within the broader context of research and society. So, to <coughs> give um, researchers have social responsibilities. You may not think of your physics researcher or your chemical engineering researcher, or can think of humanities research as um, a really big, huge part of, um, of the world, or really um, the development of knowledge, but each researcher does have an obligation to act in the, the best interests of the public. So, in the end, you really are trying to enhance quality um, of life um, and the world in and of itself. You're trying to create something good. Um, researchers can act on these social responsibilities by really understanding the context. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What's the big picture? Um, you know, maybe not everybody can appreciate the intricacies of the swarming capabilities of Suma-Nosa but how does that apply to the real world? What's, what's the end, the light, the end of the tunnel? What's the big picture? Uh, by carefully designing and selecting projects, so thoughtfully designing experiments, and engaging with the public and communicating why what you're doing is important. <coughs> so really the takeaway point is that your research, whatever it may be, does go beyond your lab, beyond your computer, beyond your birth funded project. It goes, it fits into part of a bigger picture. So, lot of these responsibilities come under expectations, both professional and public. So, public expectations may be more clearly stated um, within codes of ethics or um, handbooks that are um, established by. Um, colleagues or by professional associations, and you as emerging professionals, I encourage you all to take a look at these. Um, they're different for every profession, for every subfield. so take a look at the codes of ethics, what's expected, what, what may be something that you haven't thought of yet. Um, it's worth engaging in that early. Um, the earlier you get involved, the better, and you might learn something new. In terms of public expectations, um, the public expects researchers as people who have advanced knowledge, advanced skills, and who know a lot more about X topic than the average state person, um, you're expected to act in the public good. It's anticipated that researchers are doing something to improve this world, Um, which may seem intuitive to you, but it's it's a really important thing to keep in mind as you conduct your research. It is part of something larger than itself. Um, And then also there's the, the topic of the fact that your research, you don't know the outcomes of it, and that's a risk as an inherent risk in and of itself. So, with that comes a great bit of um, responsibility. So, how are you going to act on this? There's two ways of looking at this: from the micro and the macro. From the micro, um, good, sound research, um, well-designed and responsibly conducted research, and promote these public interests um, through a number of venues. So. Really, one takeaway point is that research that exists in a vacuum that only lives in a laboratory or in a paper um, on your computer isn't doing anything to help um, the world to improve and enhance anything that we have here, so it's important to disseminate that information, which is why um, it's emphasized, you know, how are you going to share this um, in any grant proposal that you write, that's one of the main questions, you know, what are you going to do with this, how are you going to um, share that with people, um, whether in public or within your profession. And then thinking of it in a macro sense, um, research can exist as part of a larger system, so research doesn't exist for it's <coughs> the itself, um, it's part of a larger um, whole. So, one example of this um, was the Green Revolution, which took place in the mid-20th century um, following World War II, um, in which researchers, politicians, philanthropists, and farmers worked together to address <coughs> the issue of hunger in developing nations, so um, the end goal was to introduce high yield crops. So all of these interconnected industries and people with different skill sets work together to accomplish this end goal. And there are a number of elements um, pertinent to that. So example of research part of a larger goal. So public engagement. Um, I think some would say that this is arguably one of the most important aspects of the research. How are we going to engage with the public? Um, How are you going to engage in advocacy to promote your findings and how they may help certain um, groups or um, help solve certain problems? Um, Researchers have these abilities, have these capabilities of contributing to policy, uh, to educating the public. I want immediate example would be science communication and really how do you engage with the public to um, convey your results and convey what you've learned, what you've discovered as a researcher. To, um, so that the average lay person can understand that that's really important. Um, and finally, researchers can donate their services to perhaps people who can help them one. Um, example of this um, is um, Doctors Without Borders. That was one example even in the CITI course, um, where that's, that's a way in which researchers and professionals can donate their services. So in summary, um, professional societies and the public hold expectations for researchers at all levels from undergraduates to uh, people who have been conducting research for 31 years um, and that they have obligations to act in the public with, with good intentions um, and responsibly um, and this also um, brings, into, brings into the full fact that um, researchers have specialized knowledge and skills that the average person may not have so they have to use those responsibly and, um, and live good it well um, and um, engaging publicly and um, keeping in mind that um, the research that is conducted may have some um, unpredictable or risky outcomes that's something they so do we have any questions? We have researchers and faculty in the audience who may be able to provide some insight if you have any specific questions. Wonderful. (laughs) So now we, if everyone's logged into the CITI program, we're going to give you five minutes to complete the quiz on your own to get individual credit. Is everyone situated with that? that? As um, yes. The responsible conduct of research. I'd like to introduce our next module on plagiarism. Um, we have our business librarian here, Linda Hawk. Hi. Let's see.
6: Okay. So we just want to. Um, talk about what plagiarism is um, and how to avoid it. This is a topic that you've certainly heard about before, so it shouldn't be new to you, but um, it is really important because it's it's an issue that comes up um, in so many different venues. It's an issue for students, it's an issue for academic researchers, and it's also an, an issue for you know authors outside of the academy. So this is um, a challenge that you know, you've certainly faced in the past. You'll be um, encounter you may encounter in your new role as a researcher and um, and beyond. So you know, what is plagiarism? It really is a, a violation of, of the norm. That an understanding between scholars and the community at large about you know whether the data, text, and information. Um, that you disseminate is original. So, um, you know, plagiarism is not just something that's confined to the written text. Um, it could involve data. It could involve, you know, video. It could involve, involve um, a, a speaking engagement. So it's not, you know, fixed in a particular form. Um, and it really is an ethical breach, and an ethical misunderstanding um, between a community. Um, other forms of, of uh, research misconduct um, include uh, fabrication and falsification. And those two types of um, research misconduct are, are more typically um, more typically involved on um, data. But plagiarism is something that can apply to the spoken word, the written text, or the um, data itself. <coughs> um. This is a definition of plagiarism provided by um, the Office of Science and Technology. Um, that's a, a federal agency. So you know, in addition to plagiarism um, you know, being a norm that's understood among researchers, um, it's also defined and um, applied within the context of federally funded research. So the definition is that plagiarism is a misappropriation of another person's ideas, processes, results, or words without giving appropriate credit. And this uh, definition you know, has been adopted by other um, federal funders. Um, I just ca- kind of um, grabbed a screen capture of this because uh, the Office of um, Research Integrity, which is part of the National Institute of Health, has also adopted that definition. And you'll see that on, on the very first page of, like on the landing page of the, their home page, the first few items, um, current items, talk about research misconduct. And you know, if you if you were to open these up, this was captured a couple of days ago. And there's actually, I think, like the third thing on the website was also about research misconduct. There's descriptions of you know, situations that happened where federal funders um, engaged in research misconduct. So, um, in these instances, it talks about, you know, it summarizes what happened to engage in the research misconduct and then, you know, talks about what the ramifications of that are. And in these instances, typically, the researchers are prohibited from engaging um, or receiving federal funds for research or research for a particular period of time. That, those are the, you know, those are typical um, penalties. As a, as a student, you're probably used to the penalty or you're familiar with the penalties um, at Villanova, and if you're not, um, you should be. There's um, an academic integrity page that describes what the process is um, if there's an instance of, of plagiarism, and it's probably a good idea to familiarize yourself with that. Okay, so you know, you know, who can commit plagiarism or who can engage in plagiarism? It really can be anyone. So um, just because you're, you're uh, you know a research assistant and you're not uh, you know a principal researcher, that doesn't mean that you can't engage in plagiarism. Plagiarism is something that can happen um, or or be engaged in by principal researchers, by faculty, by students. Um, it can really be any anyone. Um, there's also there can sometimes be a misconception that plagiarism can only happen you know in a published research paper or a book. And that's also not the case, especially in the context of federally funded research. Um, the, the idea that pl- plagiarism um, happens, it can happen you know, not just in something that's published, but in, in any kind of scholarly communication, including a um, grant application or any communication within the, the, um, that context. So um, it's not just for a paper that you submit for publication. Um, and there, there's also, uh, I think, maybe a misconception, too, that plagiarism is really just about the written text. And um, and I think that that maybe stems from copyright. Copyright is a law, um, a federal law that, that governs, uh, it really protects the intellectual property of authors. So copyright only applies to ideas um, that are in a fixed form. But plagiarism really isn't just defined to copying the ideas or, or processes that are in a fixed form. It can also apply to speaking engagements, videos, that kind of thing, too. Okay. So, how do you, you know, avoid plagiarism? I think you know we're all familiar. You need to um, provide proper attribution for other people's ideas and, and recognize them, and, you know, for the contribution that they're making to the work that you're doing. So how do you do that? Um, use citations, um, use qu- quotation marks, or offset text that is dire- a direct quote. And this sort of. You know, how to do that is is kind of driven by whatever your discipline is, because there are different norms for that, depending on what the discipline is, or what the the publication style um, requirements are. Um, Basically, when you need to present someone else's ideas, methods, data, um, you need, that's not common knowledge, you need to provide some attribution for it, but the, the form of attribution, again, varies depending on um, what discipline you're working in, or, or you know where you're publishing, or how you're communicating, what, what the, the scholarly communication method is. If you're you know working, if you're writing for publication for a scholarly journal, you'll have to follow the um, forms of attribution for that. If you're um, maybe you know writing a blog to communicate your researcher to research to a broader audience. You may not need to use that very formal means of attribution but you still need to provide attribution Um, and then uh, you know you don't really need to provide attribution for every single thing Um, you don't need to provide attribution for common knowledge but sometimes it's really it's there's a big challenge around deciding you know is something common knowledge or not and that's really Um, Driven by the context that you're working in. Um, If I'm communicating with another librarian, I may not use, you know, provide attribution for talking about uh, an idea of of a historical librarian because I would assume that that other librarian knows about, you know, where that came from. But if I'm talking to or I'm trying to communicate with a high school student, I may need to provide attribution. So it, it really is you know, context-driven. You need to pay attention to who your audience is. And that drives you know, your decision as to you know, whether something's common knowledge or not. OK. So we know, we, you know if you take exact words and a direct quote, you need to provide attribution. But we also need to provide attribution for when we, we summarize something or when we paraphrase. Um, and the CIT module um, makes a very clear distinction between summarizing and paraphrasing. Summarizing is concise, succinct. Paraphrasing is you know, sort of uh, more closely um, used to the original text or the original document or the original idea. So it's, it's not as concise and, and condensed. <coughs> so um, I'd like us, even though we're a really large group, to just do a little you know, plagiarism exercise. So I'm going to give you um, like a minute and a half or so to read this text. And then after we read the text, we're going to look at some examples of summarizing and paraphrasing and, and talk about you know, you know, if they do really a good job of summarizing and paraphrasing, because this is something you really need to um, know how to do well to avoid plagiarism. So spend a minute, and I'll be quiet i OK, I don't see any more, like, too many eyes still on the screen. So I'm going to assume that most of you have you know, read through the paragraph, digested it. Um, and then what I'd like you to do, I'd like us as a group to do, is take another moment and look at this passage. And what I'd like to talk about, whether this is a good summary, paraphrase, or maybe not such a good summary of paraphrase. Maybe Doesn't talk about it.
1: It it
6: really captures most of the ideas. It's pretty long.
1: Any other ideas? I would have said summary, because it seems to make certain assumptions about the reader's knowledge of these things. It doesn't. It doesn't specify information about the first three life cycles. It seems seems to think that the reader will probably know what those are. Right. So it, it assumes. So it some general knowledge. I, yeah, I think it assumes some general knowledge,
0: and again, I think it'd be constantly sort of just a quick summary so that you can Other ideas? I'd say summary, too, because it doesn't look the mm-hmm. same as main points. I think it explains the mm-hmm. basis cool. of the data's
6: really and it right, says that it has to be managed. Okay. And now, um, would you say that this is plagiarism or do you think this is a a good ethical example of providing attribution for that original text? totally with you that's how I designed um, this to be read Um, you know I do provide attribution you can provide attribution Um, but this is is really a little bit too close to the text of the original document I use a lot of the same phrases I um, you know you're right that I really do it's kind of like a summary like I I use the same phrases to say that identify what the, the stages of the life cycles are and I just Cut, kind of slash out um, the explanation of what those are, which is which is okay because it assumes a certain amount of knowledge. But then there, there are some other um, phrases and um, use of words that 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 hew very closely to the original text. So I would consider this um, an instance of, of plagiarism. Even though I do have some um, attribution here. So let's do this, you know, kind of practice a little bit more. I'm going to give you one other shorter phrase. Take a look at, and read this and tell me what you think.
7: given, and I assume at the end of the article, a the person who is reading this can look and see. The question has to do with what the purpose of that. You know
6: what, that, that's
7: a, um. If that's to guide someone to certain ideas about this, I, I don't have the sense that the person is arrogating to, the author is arrogating to himself or herself the source of that.
6: Right.
7: I think. Did, did the rest? Did the rest of the group hear that comment? Could you um, say it again? Yeah, louder so that in <laughs> facing the room so that everyone could hear. Summarize it. <laughs> oh, that's going so to be the really call sorry. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to object to the characterization of the previous example as plagiarism. I. It would depend, in my mind, on the purpose of that citation, I recognize as I read it, read it through and re-ran the video of the longer uh, excerpt, that there were direct quotations, but it was a summary, and if it's meant to guide someone rather right. than um, asserting authorship, the page reference with the full citation at the end of the document allows the reader to go and see the entire passage. And uh,
6: you find it it's efficient. Um, you know, and and I and I very much appreciate the, your your point that you know depending on you know how the, the passage is used can very much color whether something yes. is plagiarism or not. Um,
1: could, could you briefly go back? yeah.
6: To the original? Yeah, I think it's right here. Oops, the original? One more. Right. Is. Right. I think I think that the um, I think that what you bring up is really important because um, plagiarism is not always really cut and dry. It's not always an instance of you know someone didn't provide any attribution at all. And so I, I really I, I I don't agree with, with um, your <laughs> assessment. I I agree with um, your point that plagiarism can be um, very much. Dependent on the whole, whole context, and you don't have this is like pulled out of context. But yes, yeah. one other so question sort of along in that same line
5: What would be the best way to fix this? What Would it be to use a lot of ellipses and quotation marks, or to change the language used inside the passage to make it more clearly summary? I,
6: I think I think it go, go ahead, quotes and ellipses, quotes, quotes, quotes and ellipses would work depending on but that also depends on. The, the style and the, the purpose and you know what the broader you know whether it's in a research paper and what the style is for that particular publication and, and all of those kinds of things. So um, I think you bring up a really uh, important
7: point. Yeah I, I just the, the point was I didn't have the feeling that the author was arrogating to himself or herself right the credit for, for that right. And it would depend upon whether this is some sort of theoretical framework right, or advice to someone. And,
6: and, and this is precisely what makes it really difficult to, to, you know, say precisely this is, you know, have a check off, this is plagiarism, this isn't. Sometimes it's cut and dry, and other times there's um, a lot of, uh, yes. On one of your previous slides, you said that you can plagiarize yourself. Yes. How? <laughs> you, you know what, um, you know, that it, it's... Uh, Sometimes scholars, they, um, you know, they'll, they'll maybe publish something at one place and submit something that is so very close to another journal, in another journal, and um, present it as if it's new information that has never been presented before. But if it's your own work? Yes, it's your own work, like but there's, there's also work. an expectation that um, that when you submit something, it's, it's a little different idea, but, um,
3: yeah. Yeah, just as, just as equally, you'll see authors citing themselves yeah. all yeah. the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. you're saying, I've introduced this idea before. This isn't new. Right. This
6: is exactly. <laughs> uh, One more question. I don't think that we have much more time. Can I take one more question?
5: Yeah. Yes. You uh, hit on an interesting point with the previous questions about oftentimes this can be kind of a gray area. One thing that some of us might have our students do down the road is potentially present at a conference, maybe, who knows, depends on how the research goes. But it brings up an interesting point of plagiarism, copyright infringement, academic fair use. Not to single you out, we're all kind of guilty at this times. So but you screen captured something and put this in a presentation. and That's certainly a gray area on a copyrighted
6: website, so yeah. what
5: advice would you give
6: our students well, on that? That website um, was a, that is a from a federal source, so um, federal sources are not really governed by by copyright. So, like a federal publication isn't governed
8: by copyright. So,
6: copyright is a really different issue than plagiarism. Although they they seem like they're very closely related, copyright is the law again to protect the intellectual property rights of authors, um, and there are what's called fair use exceptions to copyright that permit um, you to use copyrighted um, resources without gaining prior permission for that. So really, copyright and plagiarism are related because they're both um, about um, using the ideas of someone else. um, But they're very uh, different. Plagiarism tends to be, for the most part, abnormal, although within the context of federally funded research, it's a regulated norm, whereas copyright is a law, and so I kind of want to
3: treat them differently. Is that answer the answer to your question? I, I guess my question is more:
5: Is there any sort of printed resources available for our students from the university on these topics? On on copyright and, and fair use and yes. all these things? Yes.
6: Yeah. There is, um, and I uh, I can. I can give the links to Catherine to share with the group. Okay, thank yeah. you. So, um, General chairwoman, Council, has lists of resources on copyright. And actually, right now, i in the process of reviewing copyright on materials on our website. And yeah, so um, I'll give you the link for those. Yes. So, um, it seems to really be important, like that. A of coded integrity, for instance, has yes. a sustained discussion of this issue, but. Um, Plagiarism is not necessarily uh, dependent on my intention to deceive
3: or to, to intentionally take credit for something that's online, Correct? Right. Which is to say, isn't it merely the
1: fact? So I can't simply say, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot." Like I forgot to say this. It was just a yes. I didn't mean to. And yeah, I just want to make is does that govern? That doesn't cut it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's pretty that's cut dry. You just say, "I forgot." It's like it
8: you don't dry. Dry. Maybe the you know.
6: You know You know, if you readily admit that, oh, yeah, no, I see, look what I did, I didn't, I messed this
5: up. Whereas the, the penalties in a, um, you know, in a research setting would, uh, you know, I don't think still apply if you said, oh, I forgot. So I guess the, the, the important thing then would be, it is dependent on the researcher to do a little bit of work to make sure, well, what are the expectations of discipline? Absolutely. What are the expectations for this particular Form in which I'm presenting my research, and
6: then to do the best I can to make sure I at least aware. Okay. So, um, in the interest of time, we're going to skip over the the second example, and just to recap, you know, plagiarism is a is a form of academic dishonesty. You know, based on a failure to give credit um, to someone else where credit is due. Um, you know, ways to avoid plagiarism is pr- to provide attribution, um, based on, you know, the norms of your particular discipline. And I think we've used up all our time for questions. So you want to right now go to your um, CIT, CITI uh, module, and take that quiz right now.
2: I have to say everyone has finished up with the quiz. Um, so our next module is um, research misconduct. So continuing on that vein from um, plagiarism and continuing to the overall topic of research misconduct, we're going to start with watching um, the CITI video. To we have. To talk. I just read Dr. Poon's article online, and you not believe this. She misrepresents
0: how would she do that? She either got it wrong or has some other agenda. I don't know. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure Carson I can read. And I was right there every step of the way. And now it's published. I should turn her in. Not wise. What if she's caught? I could go down with her.
8: I've got proof, remember? I made copies of everything, even her private notes. Also not wise. Under the circumstances, I'd say it was a very good move.
5: I'll bust her to the chair, and we'll see if she gets tenure now. Listen, you know you can't evade back how the day right?
8: I suppose, but that's not the point. She got it wrong, and I know it, so I need to speak up. Jonah, trust me, you don't even want to start that kind of mess.
5: You're still honorable until you defended your dissertation. But besides, I could follow you your whole career. Don't sink your own boat. But
0: what about the truth?
5: Absolutely. The truth should be. How about correcting reading the first article after the matter is Perfect. Oh,
8: well, thank you. That's perfect. I can live with that. So, how's the transcribing going? Okay. I least released my memories. I'm encoding the interviews I did yesterday, and again, there doesn't seem to be evidence for the descriptors.
5: Hypothesized descriptors? Of course. <laughs> Have <laughs> you talked to Dr. 48? Oh, yeah. He just says, I know those things are happening. Go out there and find <laughs> I think they should be happening. I just can't find them.
8: Hey, these interviews are like the same classroom, but on different days, with a very different number of kids in attendance. So the data is probably unreliable anyway. Maybe you can use that as a reason to throw out the interview results to this point and
3: take a week to figure out what you need to get and what you want. Well, maybe. So I haven't gotten over the tools I've been using.
5: You're right. You can rethink. And Usually it is all this time. Let's see. I've got a few more. Maybe if I look at the questions. That you create nice a new set of eyes. Well, so much for that. And I quote, serious waste of breath money, exclamation point. Keep everything in, make it work, double, exclamation point. And of course, far more important than being active.
0: And once again, truth wins.
2: So, um, did anyone notice any research misconduct in in that video? Any immediate impressions? No immediate impressions? Lots of talk. What about making copies of private notes? Does that seem particularly ethical? Okay, well, (laughs) we'll learn more about research misconduct and then address that um, issue in the video in a few minutes. So how do we define research misconduct? We talked a little bit about plagiarism, but research misconduct can take many different forms. Um, And often there are quite a few gray areas, as Linda mentioned, um, with plagiarism. So in December of 2000, the US Office of Science and Technology Policy Um, put forth a policy on research misconduct and defining it. Um, And that policy defines research misconduct as fabrication, falsification and plagiarism in shorthand FFP. So FFP can take place in absolutely any point of the research project from or process from the proposal of research all the way to publication and everything in between including oral presentations, progress reports, lab records. Um, anything physical or or electronic um, all the way to internal reports and of course um, publication. So another stipulation of the policy is that this um, research misconduct is done intentionally, knowingly, and or recklessly which may differ a little bit from plagiarism which may take place um, with a little bit of ignorance, well I didn't mean to do that. But research misconduct, um, the difference between that and plagiarism, Um, very briefly and very broadly is that it is intentional and reckless and knowing. Um, And it can take place at any level. It's not just something that um, research assistants or undergraduate researchers need to pay attention to. It is something that um, is important to pay attention to throughout the course of a career of an entire 30, 40, 50 year period um, at any level at any point. So going a little bit further into depth with FFP, fabrication um, is making up your data. So you really want this data um, to fit your hypothesis, so you're going to make it up. Um, Creating fictional tables, graphs, or figures um, and publishing that or not publishing it, putting it in a poster, um, you are making up that data, you are fabricating it. Um, The next would be falsification, which is manipulating data that you did obtain. Um, but maybe omitting some results um, and manipulating them to fit your preferred hypothesis. So you're not completely making it up but you're making it, you're misrepresenting it. And then finally plagiarism which we covered in the previous module which is um, the appropriation of another person's ideas, processes, results, or words without giving them the appropriate credit. So a little bit more about um, research misconduct. some other issues that are pertinent to research misconduct that may not fall under its very specific definition are questionable research practices, um, which may include failing to disclose negative outcomes, things that you didn't expect to happen or really want to happen and just omitting them and um, conveniently leaving them out. Um, and or as well as um, stopping research prematurely say you're getting the results that you want okay well we can stop here we have what we want um, it's not an accurate representation of the entire project of all the research in addition um, non-compliance so not adhering to um, federal regulations or institutional policies um, you're not being compliant there so that is absolutely um, related to research misconduct and can feed into it So, what's the impact of research misconduct? Um, So, in this journal last week, Science, um, very well known, um, there was a study that was retracted. Um, You may have seen it in the news. It was um, a paper published about. people, influ- it was a social issue, um, the issue of same-sex marriage and whether um, people distributing pamphlets um, were influencing, influencing it one way or the other, influencing people's opinions. Um, the paper was retracted because they, the researchers had engaged in um, research misconduct and data mismanagement. Um, and this is especially timely because the international meeting, Um, for the responsible conduct of research is actually taking place this week in South America so this is an incredibly timely pertinent this happens research misconduct um, we don't want it to happen all the time and I wouldn't say that it happens all the time but it does happen Um, and as recently as last week for a very public journal is on the front page of the New York Times, so this is a big deal. Um, Definitely look up the article. It was interesting because it really outlined the the ways in which the researchers failed to um, uphold their responsibility to society and to their profession as researchers. So the impact, um, very obviously um, there's a breach of trust there. Um, If you've published something that has been retracted because it was I mean, not a study that was well designed or you can't produce the data that um, you initially said that you'd achieved from the study, um, how can we trust what you did two years ago or what you do two years from now? It's that breach of trust um, in research and in researchers. Um, mm-hmm. This also applies to the research community as, um, as researchers may try to replicate a study that maybe wasn't wasn't sound to begin with, so they're wasting time and money and resources trying to replicate something that can't be replicated. Um, Another example of this would be the 1998 study published um, by Dr. Wakefield in the United Kingdom in the Lancet. Um, Some of you may be familiar with this paper. Um, It drew a direct link between autism and the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. even though that was in 1998 it blew up um, scared people a lot, particularly parents who weren't certain if they should give their children these vaccines and lo and behold measles outbreaks all these years later so um, many hundreds hundreds of researchers and teams have attempted to replicate the the results of that paper. Um, none of them have achieved the same same conclusions so um, that's a lot of time and money and effort that's being expended to to do what? It's a waste of time. So um, the cost also impacts researchers and their organizations. If a researcher within a certain organization um, engages in research misconduct, what does that say about the institution? What does that say about the person themselves? What about their team? Anyone affiliated with them? And that was mentioned a little bit in the video, that Um, If you're associated with someone and you're part of that group of someone who is engaging in that research misconduct, your name is blackened as well. So um, the impact is is incredible with research misconduct and engaging in it, even if you're only tangentially related. So how do we prevent this? Um, This is something we want to prevent. No one wants to um, engage in research misconduct and get themselves and everyone they know in trouble. Some of the ways that this can be prevented is um, institutions having policies surrounding um, research misconduct and guidelines and specific um, protocols that they need to follow. In addition to that, ongoing and open discussions within research teams, um, faculty mentors speaking with um, mentees, you know, what do we do? How do we do it? What's the correct way to go about doing these things and why are we doing it? Um, discussing roles and responsibilities, who is responsible for collecting what data, how, um, what's the plan um, and open communication surrounding um, responsibilities. And then finally another um, way of preventing research misconduct can be um, periodically verifying the data collection methods, making sure you're getting what you want to get in the way that you said that you were going to get it um, and just making sure everything's correct. So When allegations of research misconduct um, do come about, which they do um, at any level, um, the federal research misconduct policy that I mentioned before um, describes a few phases that typically will take place um, in response to these allegations, the first being an inquiry. So an assessment of whether this is valid, whether this actually happened, and whether an investigation needs to take place. Following that, an investigation can take place um, in which data is collected about Um, the allegation and and, and entire picture is created to to represent what happened, what didn't happen. And then finally, um, the third step in the process um, is a review and just making sure um, which actions should be taken, um, what's appropriate for the situation. So in summary, um, research misconduct in a field, in absolutely any field of research, any subfield um, at any level. It's something that, um, like I said, we don't want to believe is so commonplace that it's happening all the time everywhere, but it can happen anywhere and at any time. Um, Organizations um, should have policies and procedures for handling these allegations of research misconduct when they do happen, and researchers above and above all, have an obligation to avoid engaging in any kind of research misconduct or questionable research behaviors. And um, when in doubt, shorthand, FFP, falsification, fabrication, and what's the P? Very good, wonderful.
7: All
2: right, any questions?
7: Okay. I really want question. I'm, I'm reminded in this, of the, because you, you mentioned procedures that are appropriate for the research. If you are doing research involving human subjects, the research should be submitted to the Institutional Review Board. But these lines are being blurred in a very important way, and I'm referring to um, an experiment that was conducted by the Facebook Social sciences team, which was published a year or so ago. And it's a very interesting problem for me, for me to think about. The Facebook social sciences team is uh, a group of researchers who are credentialed in social sciences, who work for Facebook, and have access to all of the large data sets that come from feeds and what they did was to manipulate the feeds uh, to uh, control an experimental group of Facebook users presenting the control group with their ordinary feed. But in the experimental group, they took, um, they, they censored the feed so that it would either be biased toward things that were n- of negative emotional affect or positive emotional affect to discover whether that would influence the resulting behavior, feeds of people <coughs> in that so, Without informed consent. Apparently, if you do this as a Facebook researcher, there are no institutional um, restrictions as to how you manipulate the, the behavior of the user. But the paper was published with co-authors, and the co-authors were from um, an Ivy League university, Cornell. Um, it isn't a question, but it's a point of the place where lines are being blurred in a in, in what I think is a very serious way. Um, and I've heard of cases of people using facial recognition and um, emotional mapping of uh, images that are captured from the candid behavior of individuals on the web, where, again, there's no, there's no informed consent. It strikes me as a different category of um, very questionable behavior.
2: Sure. Um, Any other questions, comments, feelings? Okay. if not, um, we are going to take five minutes to complete the quiz, starting now. Everybody can settle down,
0: please. Alright, so we're
2: going to move on to data management now, starting off with a video.
8: Students. Don't break the rules. This study is too important. My time is important too. And we both know it won't make a bit of difference. Except that I'm making a job at Creativity Plus. Don't you care at all about these kids? This study is so pivotal in getting them the services they need. I thought we were supposed to care about gathering accurate data. Not trying to use the study to prove things we believe. That goes without saying. But if you jeopardize this study, those kids will lose big time about okay. you. So are we going to fill these all out, get yelled at, and probably lose our jobs, or what? OK. Let's not throw out this batch. But you need to promise to use the whole survey from now on. All right. All right. And we might want to slightly reword question number seven. When I use rarely instead of never, kid selects A. And that's the best answer, the answer that's critical to getting extra services for them. Yeah. I suppose. I've got to
0: go. All
2: right, now we're going to talk about data management. (laughs) So data management is um, another module in the CITI program that is incredibly important because as researchers, you know that um, data is what makes the research when you, when you collect that good data. Um, that's what helps you create a good um, publication or study. So um, data um, is defined as, um, well they represent information obtained by following a very carefully defined study. Um, which um, the study is defined at the very start of the experiment, prior to the collection of any data whatsoever. Um, Two goals in data collection um, is that you want your data to be reliable. Um, Reliability is is key um, because then your your study is replicable. Um, The second is validity. Whether what you're saying that you're measuring is actually measuring what you said it's going to measure. Um, And then, within specific disciplines, um, there are different standards and um, regulate, not regulations, but standards for um, collecting these data and making sure these goals apply. Um, Some of the issues that arise um, when we're talking about data um, are methodological, so whether the research study is well designed, whether um, your sample selection is good, whether um, your data analysis is um, is good. a good, good methodology in um, study design will help reduce error and reduce bias. So those are things that you want. Um, moving on to technological issues. Data lifecycle management um, refers to managing all of the data from the beginning to the end of the research study. Um, and some of the issues addressed there are confidentiality, the integrity of the data, and its availability. Um, and then finally, there are ethical, legal and professional and organizational policies surrounding data. Um, for instance, if, um, if you are working with human subjects, you may be subject to IRB approval, an institutional review board. So um, when you're collecting data, you need to take all of these things into mind. So going further into the methodological, um, Study design involves planning for all steps of the research cycle, from the very beginning to the very end, Um, and as I mentioned, IRB approval may be necessary or IACUC if you are using animal subjects, and Will will talk about that um, in a few. You may also be, as you're designing a research study, you may be subject to um, regulations that govern the use of certain types of research materials. So anything that's restricted, um, radioactive substances, hazardous chemical compounds. Um, Moving on to the technological, you need to protect that data once you have it. So um, researchers have an obligation to manage that data from its creation to its destruction throughout its entire cycle. Um, Sharing can occur. Um, this data um, depending on what kind of data it is and um, who has access to it so that that is absolutely part of a research study but you want to make sure that um, people who shouldn't be getting their hands on this data don't so how are you going to accomplish that and as mentioned previously data life cycle management is um, defined as the choice of devices so how are you going to store this data um, media and processes to protect the data over the long term from beginning to end so, three goals of data lifecycle management are confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, and you will all receive these slides We're running a little behind, so um, you can read over these later and exactly what they dive into in terms of data management. Um, researchers should always have the ability to recover this data in an uncorrupted and unaltered form. The study that I mentioned that was retracted last week from um, science, um, that was one of the key shortcomings of that study, that they were not able in the end to provide the data that they'd um, supposedly um, achieved. So if they can't produce that original data, that's a big problem and that's grounds for um, retracting a study, so hugely important. So data acquisition, Um, before you collect any data, you need to have a plan of how you're going to collect it. Um, And having a good, solid plan that has been thought through um, from beginning to end and you know, the who, what, where, when, why, how um, allows researchers to consider adjustments um, and make different um, changes if they need to um, before they've collected any data. And this um, assists in avoiding um, bias um, and decreases the chance of a bias outcome. Um, Outside data, if you use mined data or data from other sources, they may come with terms and restrictions. The CATI, course, covers this in greater detail, but just that, you know, um, if you're using someone else's data, that may come with strings attached. So um, data analysis, reporting, and sharing. Um, Very broadly, handling data inappropriately can compromise the study and um, renders it useless. So um, if you don't handle your data appropriately, this is not good, this is not good for the institution, it's not good for you as a researcher, and um, certainly not for the study itself. Um, It may be tempting, but researchers may not um, discard inconvenient results or make up results. Um, We went over that in research misconduct, Um, fabrication, falsification, plagiarism, they are very bad things. So um, even though you may want to achieve a certain result or um, you may think that you should achieve a certain result, you can't make that up or discard it. Um, Researchers have an obligation to learn the standards for data analysis in their field and to avoid these sloppy research um, practices. So from the position of an undergraduate researcher, this is your responsibility, this is part of your job. So learn the standards in your field, chat with your faculty mentor. Um, It may be of value to um, discuss with them what are some of the slippery slopes, what are some of the common um, downfalls and how how can these be avoided? And then when it comes to reporting results, um, in order to responsibly um, manage your data while reporting, um, it's important to give very detailed descriptions um, of your study design, your execution, anything that you changed, um, why you changed it, and then it's important also, um, possibly intuitively, but um, we're going to say it again, to represent your data accurately in charts and tables so that they're not misleading. So in summary, research can be a little bit messy and doesn't always go as planned Um, but effective data management is crucial crucial to effective research Um, and it's possible to eliminate um, or minimize at least bias and errors as much as possible by um, having a plan and sticking to it and having a plan before you collect any data and successfully managing that data. So any questions? Yes.
5: So I'm a, I'm a laboratory experimentalist. My name is Dr. in engineering. So let me just say why you shouldn't throw away data that you think isn't correct or misbehaves itself, or in some way you think there must be a bad data point, whatever that means. First of all, what's the obvious way you can determine if you have a data point as an outlier? What's the obvious thing you should probably do? Repeat the experiment, right? be it 10 times if necessary, so you can get start to get some uh, level of uh, understanding of the um, sort of the statistical uncertainty of data, how much does it bounce around just because you can't get 100% reproducibility all the conditions in what you're doing. But let me just tell you why there's so many lost opportunities when you throw away data or you hide data A lot of the times in my laboratory, we've discovered when something doesn't follow what we think it should do, it doesn't obey what our expectations are, it has led to the most creative findings. Because we discover something new. We discover something that didn't follow our expectations. And had we just ignored that trend or that data point, and we would have assumed that it must be we would have just thrown away the baby to the backlog, We would have not seen the most significant finding in our data. So that's the one thing I would tell you as a laboratory person that you should always, always try never to do, which is, first of all, you should try to believe your data. Uh, and if it doesn't do what you think you should do, you should discuss it with your advisor. You should never just assume that it's an incorrect data point. You should keep it examine it, repeat the experiment, determine whether or not it truly is an incorrect result um, or a uh, result like in my laboratory. somebody opens the door to the hallway, it probably introduces an error in our experiment because that's the kind of experiment we do. So I would just like to add that because it's the most common thing um, new researchers uh, encounter, which is their uncertainty about whether or not that data
2: point. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Okay, no. So we're going to give you five minutes for the quiz starting now. Okay, time's up. Seems like everybody has finished the quiz. So now we're going to move on to authorship, um, beginning with another video. Thanks for setting us up Laura. No problem, Alexa.
8: Is this yours? hmm Can I take a quick peek? They must have just come in today. I haven't even had a chance to see. Oh, here it is. Dr. Randall's article. And mine? Sure, you notice that. My first co-authorship. I know. Congratulations. Feels good, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, Dr. Beckwith is listed as a co author too. I can't believe Dr. Ramadel added him without any contribution. He had nothing to do with the study or the testing. It's typical for Beckwith. He publishes fairly consistently himself, but he wants credit for everything that happens around here. Fairly consistently? You mean the ten articles he's written from that one study? Yep, he's our own Salami Science King. What? <laughs> It's like he's cutting little slices off the same research salami. He dresses it up with different condiments, and poof, is another <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk to the editor the department. Dr. Aspin needs to know this. Trust me, Lezard, he knows. If he wanted it changed, he'd have changed it. All this does is discredit all reputation. Beckwith is doing sloppy science and taking credit for work he hasn't done. I'm gonna make a stink. Alexa, did you ever hear why I didn't get my PhD? No. It was an ethical issue that I took to Dr. Aspen. He reprimanded the faculty member and then didn't protect me from the blowback. My dissertation wasn't accepted time after time because my methods and data kept getting challenged. I did all of the work just to have the rug pulled out from under me by the low life. I blew the whistle on. Of course, I couldn't prove anything. All Aspen could do was offer me a job, which is why I'm still here. He couldn't give me my future back. The only way around it was to start over, but by then I was too burned out by the whole thing. I'm so sorry, Laura. Anyway, Beckwith is playing a risky game by attaching himself to everything that comes through. If there's ever a problem with the findings or a charge of plagiarism, he'll have to deal with that fallout. Yeah, I suppose eventually his salami will get so old that he'll have to do another step. Oh, I kept track of him. He left here eventually, but was hammered for a severe conflict of interest issue at his next job. I may have gotten my Ph.D., but he got what was coming to him. Do <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe just a little. <laughs>
2: which leads us to our discussion about authorship so as demonstrated by the video um, authorship's really important Um, on a more serious note leaving all salamis um, in the video um, publication is that primary mechanism for disseminating findings and um, contributing those findings to um, the pool of knowledge that exists um, out there. So, um, who conducts this and who gets credit for this is is really important. Um, publication and the dissemination of in- information also alerts um, the society to information that may have really important implications in a number of ways. Um, and finally, authorship is um, the way in which the research community. Um, identifies those that should be recognized and or held accountable as mentioned in the video. So what are the criteria of authorship? How does one become an author um, when working on a research team and um, creating something for publication? Um, A generally held belief is that um, an author to qualify for authorship um, a person should have made a significant intellectual contribution to the new information that is the core of the body of work. This is an area where some gray, fuzzy lines can be, can be drawn um, because there are different standards and different people have different ideas, different personalities, um, perspectives on this. Um, and different disciplines may handle this differently. So again, talk to your research mentor and have a chat about authorship because it's an interesting topic that um, surely they would be able to share quite a bit with you um, about. So a number of models have been proposed and put forward by different professional societies um, and or journals. So there are ideas out there, but they don't all line up perfectly. Um, And then finally, um, importantly, um, a criterion of authorship is that you need to be willing to take responsibility for what's published. Your name's on it. So it is yours and you have to answer to any questions that may, may come from it. Author order, um, again, not always consistent. Generally, the first author is recognized as the person who has um, contributed the key idea, um, the most work, what have you. But sometimes in certain journals, authors can appear alphabetically. Um, there can be different orders, but generally, the first author is the, the primary investigator, the, the person who takes the bulk of the responsibility for the work and who is cited. Um, the first author, as I mentioned, primary responsibility. The corresponding author is the person who receives, um, who's the point of contact for um, people on the outside who may want to obtain reprints. And there's, of course, the senior author who is the head of the research team. These people may be the same people. The first author may be the senior author. They may not be. So um, this varies and can, can um, be different in different situations, contexts, journals, etc. cetera. Um, but one key point to take home, is that transparency and discussion are key, so knowing who is responsible for what and who is doing what and who qualifies for authorship so that everyone gets credit where credit is due. As with research, um, different responsibilities come with authorship. So all authors um, and researchers really, but authorship especially, you need to cite all relevant work, you need to create the context um, to acknowledge the context in which Um, the research works and how it fits into the rest of the field. You need to present your data accurately and clearly. Um, State your underlying assumptions. Um, Describe the work in detail um, so that it can be replicated. Really important for research. Um, You need to identify hazardous or risky aspects of the research and then disclose your conflicts of interest because that can lead to bias. and as mentioned in the video, um, conflict of interest can be grounds for major disciplinary action. The acknowledgement section. Um, Some of you in in reviewing um, journal articles may have noticed at the very bottom at the end that there's an acknowledgement section. It can appear in different places but it can also appear on posters. Um, So if you received funding or materials from another lab, um, if you've had help in some way, if someone proofread your manuscript or Um, assisted you in any way, this is a place where you can acknowledge them even though they may not be a main author of the body of work, um, this is where you acknowledge, um, hey, this person helped out and um, this may be described in detail, you know, exactly what they did. So in summary, authorship is critical for professional advancement. Um, Collaborators um, depend on integrity. This is something that everyone needs to work together, um, be transparent about. Um, when these decisions are being made. um, There are a lot of gray areas and fuzziness where um, authorship criteria and author order um, are so um, this is definitely an arena for discussion and clarification and if there are any questions ask because it can be different. Um, People may have different ideas on what qualifies them for authorship. Someone may think that because they're friends with someone they should be listed as an author, but that may not be true. Same for someone who proofreads. Maybe they think that they made a significant contribution. They may have made a good contribution, but that doesn't necessarily qualify them for authorship. So discussion, 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 and transparency. They are key. Questions? You're all going to be first authors someday, so that's, that's cool. All right. So um, at this point, we will give you five minutes to complete the quiz. If there are no questions, um, beginning now. I am um, very happy to present um, Will Caverly, who is a member of the Office of Research Administration, and he will be talking to you about IRBs and IACUC.
0: Thanks.
1: Um, so I'm Will Caverly, again, uh, Associate Director for Research Compliance in the Office of Research Administration. Uh, we're down in Middleton Hall, which is down near Campus Corner. It's the little old farmhouse down there in, in the Shire. Um, we, are, we are responsible for um, a whole lot, but my job is primarily, um, has, has to do with research compliance for human and animal subjects. So this was the original title of a human and animal research at Villanova. 15 minutes won't do it justice, is the, the other title. Um, I'm going to do my best here to give you an idea of what human and animal research involves at Villanova. So, I also want you to be able to identify those areas and um, identify what, what is needed in terms of compliance and oversight for those areas. Um, can I get a show of hands of, of folks working with human subjects or animal subjects? Or I guess both. All right. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to move on. <laughs> um, this is just an org chart, um, just to give you an idea. Uh, our office manages sponsored programs, so anybody who has grant money comes through our office. But you'll see me over on the side um, <laughs> dealing solely with, uh, the, the sole person dealing with, with research compliance. Um, and just to give you an idea about our office, Uh, $6.5 million in in research, uh, sponsored research comes through, and we manage about $6.5 million in uh, Villanova money for research. We have 150 to 180 um, proposals coming through, 10 to 15 animals uh, protocols coming through uh, our office, 150 human subjects protocols are active, meaning people are working with humans in some capacity, and, um, and other agreements as well. A lot of what what, uh, human and animal research has to do with is is what ethical code you're following. So so what do you believe in and what do we believe in as as Villanovans? Um, Fortunately governing principles don't need to be made up. Um, We we have some available and we have to follow some by law. So Villanova's research policy having to do with human subjects, that that is you're working with human beings, uh, follows the Belmont report and uh, 45 CFR 46, which is also called the Common Rule. Um, the, the Belmont Report lays out some some very basic ideas for working with humans. What do I mean when I say working with humans? If you're surveying people all the way to if you're t- attaching electrodes to their head, you're, you're working with human subjects and you follow, everybody follows the same rules when it comes to working with human <laughs> subjects. The three principles laid out in this, uh, the Belmont Report, which is an ethical document that was produced by the government in, this, in the early 70s, is uh, respect for persons. The idea that everyone's an autonomous individual, uh, that we respect the auto- their autonomy by receiving informed consent. Has anyone heard of informed consent? All right. It's the basic idea being um, a person needs to know what they're getting involved with with the research study before they get involved with it. Uh, the next one is beneficence. Um, this is the the idea of doing no harm, which comes from the Hippocratic Oath. Right? We we minimize risks and we maximize benefits for humans involved in in research. And the last one is is justice. The idea that if there's a benefit to the research, that if if folks are benefiting from, say, having electrodes stuck to their head, that it is uh, uh, distributed evenly among among everybody. You should not be um, dismissed from doing research simply because uh, and we're participating in research simply because you don't speak English for instance. How is that, how is that fair? If, if those brain scans show that something is wrong then everybody should be able to benefit from knowing that diagnosis for instance. So how does it work? Really simply uh, my office provides assurance to the government that we're going to conduct research ethically at Villanova. Assurance is, is a document that's produced. We, we have the institutional official for human subjects research in our office. That's the person who, who answers to the government if something were to go wrong with those 150 protocols at the university. Um, we have a committee that reviews all human subjects research at the university. I'm a member of that. We also have psychologists, nurses, um, engineers, uh, and non-scientists like myself on there. Um, The makeup of that committee is defined by the federal government. And my office issues the final approval. The institutional official in my office takes a look at all the research coming through in some capacity. All right, so are there any questions about working with human beings first? No, great. So, working Uh, with animals. Yes, please. Is
5: is, um, taking surveys of human beings considered to be human subjects research?
1: absolutely if you're if you're doing a simple survey it could be something as simple as asking people about their preferences about food. It all follows the same rules It's, a, it's an excellent excellent question um, so working with animals we do have research on animals happening at the university um, our policy follows the Animal Welfare Act um, and the federal code um, and and our our cognizant agency, the agency that we need to uh, work with is the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare. Um, So what the Animal Welfare Act did was was put together rules for uh, the research, the exhibition, transport and dealing um, of animals, and the uh, OLAW, Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare, um, is responsible for enforcement of those rules having to do with research. So there are three rules. This isn't this convenient. There's three ethical principles for both, right? Um, the three rules for animal research are the replacement. Uh, you shouldn't use animals unless you absolutely need to, right? We don't want to, to cause any suffering or, or cause any discomfort unless we absolutely need to, to do that. If there's a non-animal um, way you can conduct your research, then that's, the, that's what you should be doing. Um, reduction: You should only use as many animals as you need. That means not uh, repeating experiments necessarily if it if it would cause uh, uh, harm to the animals. And uh, refinement: um, You should use methods to reduce pain and suffering and, and enhance the life of the animal. Any questions about those three principles? No. So yes.
5: Um, let's say you have like a research project, and you can work with either. Human
3: which would, you, which would you rather prefer to
1: shoot? So if you're conducting a clinical trial, so you've got a new medicine that you want to try out, you absolutely have to, to work with animals first because you need to make sure it's safe for the public. So there, there are certain procedures that have to do with, um, and, and every agency, governing that research has, has its own set of rules. And I'm just I'm talking about FDA in that case. But yeah, animals are usually used as the first line, right? Um, to make sure that something's safe for human consumption. And then after that, you work with humans. But you can't survey an animal, right? So there's some, some things you need to, to be able to talk with, with humans about, and, and studies of society and so on. You absolutely need to work with humans. Any other questions? All right, what do you animals need? All right, what do they need if they're in a research environment? Air changes. Animals must have fresh air at all times, and air changes happen by the minute. Um, light cycles. You need a light-dark cycle for the animal so that their sleep isn't disrupted. Um, if, if an animal needs to be sacrificed for your experiment, then it needs to be done humanely. Does anybody know why, can anybody guess why we would have to put up all these different um, higher standards for animals than we would for humans? Somebody got it here, but yes. Yeah, consent, right? You can't ask the animal whether they want to be in research. So what we do is we make it as simple and and as pleasant for them as possible. So what do you need to do to work with animals? The vice president for academic affairs and soon the provost will provide the assurance to the government that we're conducting animal research ethically. So they, they're the, the the provost is the last person in line when it, when it comes to animal research. They have to provide the resources uh, needed to to do this the right way. Um, and we have an institutional animal care and abuse committee, which is a, a mouthful. But the IACUC reviews projects and um, make sure that they're it, adhere to ethical ethical principles. Will, my research is super important. Important. I don't feel like dealing with it. Can you just let me do my work? No, I can't. Um, (laughs) That's my job. My job at Villanova is is to make sure that the university is protected and that um, human subjects are protected and the animal subjects are protected. To me, the first part of my job is the latter part. I want to make sure that the the subjects are protected. Just as important for my job is that the university is protected, and that includes the researchers. Research on animals or humans will not be done at Villanova without ethical review. And there are consequences for not doing um, ethical review or ethical research. Um, I put up this slide before with um, the numbers and, and, and what we're doing in terms of research at Villanova. The federal government will shut down research at Villanova if it's done incorrectly. Um, it happens all the time. It just happened um, to one university having to do with with conflict of interest. These are very important regulations that need to be followed. Um, And we shouldn't just do it right because the money is on the line. We should do it because we believe in in doing it the right way. Um, So I just want to offer myself as a resource for for these these subjects, um, humans and animals. Um, Again, my office is down in Middleton Hall. Uh, My name's Will Caverly go back to the front if you need to write that down um, but yeah my, my, my position here is to work with with human and animal subjects I also manage manage grants as well so that some of you might have met me already having to do with that um, do, are there any questions about human and animal subjects no I think I'm Pretty good on time and the last slide is the discussion group. So yeah, so we'll be
2: graphing into discussion groups. Um, so if you are an engineering student conducting engineering research, um, you'll be next door to one of two <laughs> sciences stay here and humanities and social sciences go down hall two room yeah. one